Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, I'm Pam Robinson, and I serve on the worship team. I'm here to read the scripture reading this morning. Um, our scripture for this morning is Luke 7, 11 through 17. Um, here we go. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Luke 7, 11 through 17. Good morning. I thought, um, okay, so, uh, okay. <laughs> so I was praying this morning. I come here early in the morning and I'll pray before service. And um, as I was praying with Ryan and Chris back there, I just had an image of, of fire, like little pockets of fire. And my initial response to that because the, the news reports coming out of Hawaii these last couple months um, with the fires there, of course, Canada this past summer, and the seemingly in, uh, endless annual fires that we seem to have out west every year. My, my initial thought when I saw that little pocket of fire was to ask the Lord to, to quench it, to, to douse it, to put it out, as if the fire was going to be damaging. And so that was kind of my prayer this morning. And then when Samantha comes out... <laughs> and says, she quotes the Old Testament and says that when Solomon, and they're dedicating Solomon's temple and fire came down and consumed their offering, I went, oh, Jeff, you dummy. The fire is a good thing. The fire is a good thing. You know, all through the, the scriptures, we see where fire is used by God to accept or to receive offerings given to him, oftentimes called burnt offerings. But oftentimes, we also see fire being used to purify something. They'll take metals and put it into a little bowl, if you will, and they'll, they'll fire that, and the impurities will rise to the top, something that they call dross, and then they would just scrape, they would scrape those impurities off. And what was left was a much more pure 
substance, more pure silver or gold or something else. But the fire was a good thing. Now, I say all that to say two things. Number one, we want the fire of God in our lives. Yes. Let's try over here. We, we do, we do. And, and it's hard for us sometimes because the, the, when the fire comes, it can, it can overwhelm us at times, yes? yes? Right. But we do want the fire. But secondly, um, I want you to know how God has encouraged me this morning because I had just a simple little prayer in the prayer room. I had this little image of fire and I thought, how bizarre is that? And I want that to be an encouragement to some of you here. Like, like you're praying for things sometimes and like you, you get this picture of what it might look like or you just have this faith to believe that so-and-so is gonna change if you pray for them or whatever. You're just driving down the road. You're getting fuel at the stop and go. I don't know what you're doing. And all of a sudden, like somebody will come into your mind and you're just like, I'm gonna pray for them. And you think that's so strange. It's not. That's how it works sometimes that the Lord would use people like you and like me, people who are willing to hear from the Lord. And when a burden or an image like that comes into our mind and we begin to pray, God uses it. It's just, that's how it works, okay? So I hope you're encouraged um, by that. And um, I want you to know, I have been praying for fire. <laughs> I'm Pentecostal, just so you guys know. I want you to know that. I'm Pentecostal. I just don't act like it some days. Sam's Pentecostal. Right? She's more bold than me. And when she comes out and asks for prayer, I just say amen. But I'm telling you, I have been praying that God's presence would come to this church for well over a year. This morning, I asked God to give us a prophetic word that, that God would speak to us and we would know that it's for us this morning. Some of you, hear me, are just here because it's Sunday. And I'm sorry, but God is going to interrupt your day this morning. Are you okay with that? Well, too bad, because he's gonna do it anyways. I'm not trying to upsell my message. I don't know that my message is that great, to be, to be honest with you, but I know God is great. Amen? All the time. Okay, <laughs> all the time. Okay, um, well, I can get started now. You guys wanna start? All right. Uh, growing up, uh, when I was younger, my best friend, uh, Mike, lived across the street from me. Mike, Mikey, I called him both. We had a lot in common, which is, you know, I think a prerequisite when you're best friends with someone. I grew up in a neighborhood where all of the, the neighbors lived together the whole of my youth. Like all of us like lived together. My friend Mark lived in Mark's house my whole youth. My friend Greg lived in my, my, Greg's house his whole, my whole youth. Like all of the, uh, our families lived in the same neighborhood. Um, the one exception to that is this, this friend of mine, Mike, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we had a lot in common. We had a very close relationship. He had an older brother. I had an older brother. Um, his dad was pretty crafty with wood. He used to build a lot of things. My dad built a room addition onto our house when I was young. So he was working his way around wood too. So we had that. He loved to play in the creek behind his house or we used to call it the crick. I don't know if that's an old like thing, but we call it the crick. He loved to turn over rocks and pick up crawdads. I did too. Like we loved all of the same things. And we would spend our lazy summer days of summer vacation when we're not in school together all the time. I mean, sun was up and I was at Mikey's house. That is until tragedy came one day. <laughs> and like it's wont to do, it changed everything. Mike and I were virtually inseparable during our summer vacation. When school started back up in the fall, I would only see him in the evenings. 
And because Mike's family was Catholic, they went to Catholic school and I went to public school. And uh, one, I remember one day we had a school day, like a teacher institute day or maybe some federal holiday. And I was stoked that we didn't have to go to school on Monday. And I ran across the street, pounded on Mikey's door only to be greeted by his mom. And she said, no, Mike's at school today. They don't have today off. And I'm like, well, those Catholics, what is, I didn't know what that meant, but I heard my dad say it a lot. I have no idea. That's not true. I made that up. Um, and some days I would be at school. I would be at school and he would be home and he'd run across the street, knock on the door. My mom would say, no, no, they're at school today. And so whatever. And I remember one time, um, whenever Mikey would be home from school and I had to go to school, that he would oftentimes wait for me by the school bus stop. You know, so when I would get off the bus, we could play a little bit before dinner time. And uh, one of those days, um, something transpired. Uh, Mike is waiting for me out, uh, after the school bus. And um, I get off the school bus and I'm walking down the street towards him. And I, I yelled out to him sort of jealously. I'm like, did you guys have another holiday from Catholic school or something like that? And he skipped up to me matter of factly and said, no, my dad died today. I know. See, Mike had started his day much like mine. He changed out of his pajamas. He ate a bowl of cereal, grabbed his sack lunch and um, went to school. But sometime during the day, his father, Ray, had a heart attack and died. And so his mom went to the school and picked him and his brother and sister up. And so he could be home with the family. And, and looking back, I realized that we were both so young at the time that we, we, it just really didn't register us, register to us what had transpired. For us, we were really just excited to get to play together. Mike's dad's funeral, his name was Ray, his funeral was held here. Not here, here, but downstairs in the old main room. How many people remember the old main room? Remember how smelly and cramped it was down there? That's like our kid's space now. They can have it. We'll just let them have it. But if you remember when Renaissance first started, we met at the first floor of the building next door, and um, uh, the, that's actually where the funeral was actually held. Um, when we, when we get so cramped in there, I remember the AC wouldn't keep up. Does anybody remember these? All right, anyways, anyways. Um, but that, that old building next door to us is called the Moran Building from the Moran Funeral Home. It was a funeral home. We call this building the Leith Building. So if you hang out with us long enough, you'll hear us call each building by those names. Anyways, so way back in the, in the 70s when Mike's dad passed away, uh, Mike and I were there at the funeral, uh, but I have no memory of it. My, my mother has recently told me that Mike and I were pitching pennies on the terrazzo floor in the hallway, just, just playing while everybody was on the other side of a door mourning the loss of his father. And with the, the, the weeping of his mother, like I don't even hear it. I don't remember it at all. Soon after Ray had passed away, Mike's family would move back to California. And they moved back to California to be closer to family. His mom now is a widow and she has three school-aged children and she needed help. And so she packed up her bags and packed up my best friend and she moved away. It always struck me that Renaissance, this church would start and become a vibrant and growing church in an old funeral parlor. <laughs> I thought that was just such a strange thing, a place that used to be uh, used to honor the dead was now being used to proclaim the goodness of Christ Jesus. It seemed like such a paradox to me, which, to be honest, which is where I'm headed this morning, um, it's really what the kingdom of God is like, that it is paradoxical to us. It seems, to use uh, even Jesus' own words, it's upside down. It's like an upside down kingdom of sorts. 
So as we move our way through Luke, let's review what we've learned so far. Um, Luke has been careful to tell us that Jesus is an important person in history. He is the son of God, yes? And Jesus is the son of God. He was sent by the father with a purpose, a purpose for all humanity. And that purpose was to undo what sin had brought into the world. Humanity, as we know, had lost its way in the darkness and Jesus was the light that was going to lead them out. And he would lead them into a new and a better way. And he would lead them in a direction that would oftentimes appear opposite of what everyone else was doing. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we were reading a, a sermon that Jesus preached. We call it the Sermon on the Plain. As Jesus preached the sermon to his disciples, he was telling them that the kingdom of God just looks differently. Hear me when I say this. Your walk with God is going to look different than all of your friends walk, right, who don't walk with God. Like you, you can't be in step with them in all things because God is leading you to a different cadence. Is this at all making sense? It's going to look different and it shouldn't shock us when that happens. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. He says, no longer are the proud people going to be exalted, but rather the humble will be lifted up and exalted. The lowest of society have just as much value as those who presume to be at the top. And Jesus' followers have to learn this. This is what the Sermon on the Plain was about, that we have to learn how to show value to others through enemy love and a willingness to show compassion to other people, to be unwilling to prejudge people because of the color of their skin or the smell of their, do- their dirty homeless clothing or anything else. That we don't wanna be people to prejudge And and Jesus also gave warnings in his sermons to those who had no need of God, who thought they had it all together because of their riches or their pleasant circumstances. But as we will learn today, and as my friend Mike learned that day, many, many years ago, your circumstances can change in an instant. They can change for good, for sure, but they can also change for bad. There are eight stories in scripture of people being raised from the dead. I counted them, there's eight. I mean, you could probably go on with like the, the bones in Ezekiel, that whole weird thing when they come back to life, there's probably a bunch of people there. I didn't count them, but eight individual people were raised back from, from the dead. There was one by the prophet Elijah, I mentioned that earlier, right? He raised someone from the dead, the young boy to the uh, widow. One by his protege, Elisha, this is in the Old Testament. He raised someone from the dead. Here's a cool story. Elisha, after he died, was buried and they reused his grave and they took a dead body, threw it in the grave of Elisha. And when the corpse touched Elisha's bones, that guy came back to life. Odd and hilarious at the same time. That's right, I'm like, bury me there. That's what I'm saying. I pick pick my funeral plot right there. How great would they keep throwing him in? He keeps running out. Uh, Anyways. It's a funny story, sure. Um, there's, uh, in the New Testament, we have a story of the Apostle Peter. He raised someone from the dead. The, the Apostle Paul was preaching a sermon. A guy fell out the window and died, and Paul raised him back from the dead. Um, and then there are stories of Jesus raising people from the dead. Jesus is the only person in Scripture who raised more than one person. In fact, he, only, he raised three people, to be exact. Of course, we all know the story probably of Lazarus, one of his good friends who had passed away. By the time Jesus arrives to where Lazarus is, he'd been dead for about four days in the tomb. And the mourners warned Jesus not to open the tomb for surely he stinketh, King James, right right there. For surely the grave is gonna smell. Don't open the tomb. But Jesus didn't listen to them, opens the tomb and calls Lazarus forth and he raises. 
There's a, a young girl named Tabitha, the daughter of a man named Jairus. She was um, sick, and by the time Jesus got to heal her, she had already passed away. The mourners were coming out saying that she had passed away, and Jesus says she's not dead yet. They mocked him because of this, and Jesus went in, and he said, the little girl, wake up, and she woke up. And then lastly, we read this story that Pam read for us this morning. In the seventh chapter of Luke, we see where Jesus raises a young man back to life. Now, it is 100% possible that Jesus raised more than three people back to life, for sure. I, mean, I suspect it's like what he did on Friday nights, just for fun. Watch this, and he'd do things. I have no idea. But, but Scripture only records for us three times. There's an interesting passage at the end of John's gospel. It's the very last verse of John's gospel, in John chapter uh, 21, verse 25, that says this. There are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So all that to say, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Jesus did that we don't know about. Why? Because they didn't write it all down. But, and here's the important part, but this is what Luke thought was important for his readers to see that Jesus raised this widow's son back to life. Of all the things that he could have written about, this was the one that he stopped and put pen to paper and made sure that we understood this one. Luke has been laying emphasis time and time again, up all the way through to the, the gospel that we've been reading so far, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God. And he has come to recreate the world after its fantastic fall into sin. When Luke records the birth narrative, way back in Luke chapter one and two, he draws upon Old Testament prophecies that says that Jesus is going to be, um, uh, uh, these Old Testament prophecies, sorry, speaking about this long-awaited renewal. The, the angel Gabriel, if you remember, when he came to Mary and says, hey, you're gonna be pregnant with a child, and she does the what? I'm a virgin, it's a weird thing, Merry Christmas, all the thing, right? He, the angel says this stuff, he says these words, you're going to have a son, he is the son of God, and uses this language and says, and he will be called great, whatever that means. He'll be called great. And she has a, a song of response, a prophetic song of response that draws upon the words of Job and the psalmist. And she says things like this, that my son is going to bring down the mighty from their thrones and he will exalt those of humble estate. Jesus is prophesied to bring a wrecking ball into culture, tearing down old systems so that a new kingdom of God can be established. And this story of a widow and her dead son is oftentimes missed as part of that story. It's oftentimes just read as yet another miracle that Jesus does. How insane is it that we sometimes are flippant with the miracles and the signs that God provides for us through his son Jesus and his miraculous works that we dismiss them as lesser than they actually are. I don't think this is intentional on our behalf. Sometimes I think we just don't know any better. I'm telling you, there's something more than just a dead guy being raised from the dead in this story. And how many people agree that being raised from the dead is a big deal? It's a huge deal. This is greater than that. You have to see this. This is a story of the, of the resurrection of a man, and it fits into this theme of change that Luke has been telling us. He's already preached to his followers that, that Jesus will come and he will help the marginalized of society He's going to show them now how it's done by changing this poor widow's condition. 
that Jesus in the story is gonna show his disciples and us how he changes and helps the disenfranchised and the hurting. Michael, Michael Card writes this, that no group was more marginalized in the first century than women, and among women, widows were more, desperately, more desperate still. The economy of the first century in Palestine was patriarchal in nature, and without a husband, a widow would need to rely on her sons to provide for her. And if a widow had no son, she was especially impoverished. There was no government assistance program, no social security safety net, no food stamps. There was no other way to provide for her necessities. She was destitute. And even though God had made provision through his law to help the marginalized, to help those who are hurting and needy, the religious leaders chosen to lead God's people in acts of generosity and kindness and grace, they unfortunately were also the ones taking advantage of those people who were impoverished. There's a strange verse at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 20, it says this, that the, the scribes, which would be the, 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 the students of the law, the Old Testament law that spoke about help for the sojourner, help for the orphan, help for the widow, all those things. These scribes, according to Luke, devoured the widow's houses. They abused women like this widow. They took from her and took from her and took from her. And Jesus says, no. If Jesus, and this would be the story that Luke is telling us, if Jesus doesn't intervene in this woman's life, all will be lost for her. Verse 11, verse 12 says this. Soon afterward, Jesus is going to a town called Nain, and he has his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Just prior to this event, Jesus had just healed the centurion servant. Joe preached about that last week. Give Joe a hand if you were here and thought he did great. Um, if you also thought he did poorly, just say boo, boo. I agree, I thought it was terrible, it's gross. I never, no, just Joe did great last week. Come on, give him a hand, somebody. Yeah. Your introvert pastor was in Wisconsin, sweating, meeting new parents last week. It was terrible for me. I, I much rather would be here. So anyways, Jesus is on the move. He's walking into a town called Nain. And this is a town big enough to have a gate and some walls, probably not to keep, keep enemies out, but maybe to keep the farm animals out. I don't know. It's not a real big city, but it's big enough to have a gate. And it's located about 25 miles south and southwest from Capernaum. Capernaum is the home city of Peter, his apostle, which is also Jesus' sort of home base for his ministry. And so they're traveling out of Capernaum, doing some stuff, healing centurion servants, and they come to this town called Nain. And a lot of people have joined Jesus along the way, so much that Luke calls, uh, calls them a great crowd. And Jesus is at the front of this group, leading them as they made their way down the dusty roads into the next town. As they drew near to this town called Nain, a funeral procession is seen exiting the city. Jewish people did not typically bury their people inside the city walls, but rather would carry them outside the city proper. The dead body was a reminder of sin's hold on their world. And also they knew that coming in contact with the dead body would make them ceremonially unclean, which they avoided at all costs. So here they are carrying this dead man's corpse outside the city gates with a huge crowd following them and mourning. And this crowd is mourning them, being led by the woman, the widow, the one who's already buried her husband is now burying her son, is leading the charge, crying and weeping and wailing in the city has come out en masse to join her. As much as we want to think that this story is about the dead man being raised to life, 
The story is actually about the widow. Luke says in verse 12, the dead man was the only son of his mother, that she was a widow, and the crowd was with her. Three different occasions, she becomes the focus of Luke's words. Her pain, her sorrow, is the focus of this story. These funeral marches were oftentimes loud. Everyone would be wailing and crying. How many of you have seen the news when a bomb has exploded like a suicide bomb in the streets of a small village in the Middle East somewhere and they take that footage and they're carrying like a young child through the streets and, and the men are just weeping and the women are just weeping because of the destruction that has stolen a life from them? That's the story. And Jesus and his group, they encounter this. We have, we have records in antiquity of, of people mourning, hiring professional mourners to join with them, to play instruments and to wail loudly because they want everyone to know how much this person meant to them. And as this group is leaving to bury their family member, she, the widow, is leading the group, weeping as she goes. Pastor Doug Bachelors has insight when he writes that it's hard to lose someone to death, for sure, for sure. And when it's a friend, it's hard. When it's your parent, it's hard. With your spouse, it's very hard. But when it's your child, it's extremely hard. And he continues that the longest ride to the cemetery is when you're following your child there. A traffic jam of sorts happens just outside the town's gate. Jesus and his group are coming into town and the widow and her dead son are coming out. And we get the impression that Jesus and his followers stop much like you and I might stop on the side of the road when we see a hearse with lights on and a procession of cars behind them. Many of us will pull to the side of the road to pay our respects. Yes, yes, I get the impression that's what Jesus does here. Verse 13, it says that when the Lord saw who? Her. He had compassion on who? Her. And he said to who? Her. Do not weep. You see that she's the main focus of the story. Again, Luke leads the reader's mind to, towards the widow. He saw her, had compassion on her, said to her. And what happens next when the dead body sits up and speaks is not the main point of this story. Do not miss it. The, the main point is what Jesus is doing for her. Jesus looks at her and has compassion on her. This is the pivot in the story. Here's an interesting thought for us to consider. I just, we'll take a break here and, and do a little thought experiment here. But we know that Luke did not follow Jesus, okay? Luke was not a disciple of Jesus. We learned this early when we started studying. He, he was not a believer. He came to faith later in Jesus. He's writing this biography, or we call the gospel of Luke, from other people we call eyewitnesses that he has interviewed. So he has interviewed a bunch of people and he's writing all these things down and he's mailing this letter, so to speak, to his buddy Theophilus so that he would have a certainty of faith in Jesus. So all these things about Jesus, I'm telling you are true and I know they're true because I, I, I saw the eyewitness and I interviewed them and I asked them and I wrote the things down that they said. Let me ask you this question. What did the eyewitness see that made them believe to tell Luke that Jesus had compassion on her. Two crowds, two parades, if you will, come together in the middle of the, the dusty road here. And, and they, they tell Luke as he's interviewing them, what did you see? And he goes, well, Jesus had compassion on them. What did, he, what did they see? 
We don't know. We might surmise it's because, well, he raised the guy back to, from the dead and gave it back to his, his uh, mom, all that. Uh, maybe, I don't know. But let me ask you this question. How do you show compassion on others? Here's a better one. Wait for it. Are you sitting down? Are you sitting down? How do you not show compassion on others? I have an answer for you. You divert your eyes from them. When you, when you pull up to that stoplight, you don't, you don't see that person with that, that bent up piece of cardboard that says need help. You ignore them. I do it too. It's all good. I understand, but that's how we do it. When we don't show compassion on others, we do so by not giving them our eyes. Jesus gave her compassion. What did he do? I think he looked at her. I think he looked her in the eyes, maybe with a sniffle and a tear, I don't know, but he looks at her and, and they say, this is compassion. Jesus moves towards her and then speaks to her, commands her to do not weep. What a bold statement. <laughs> Joel Green writes that Luke identifies Jesus as the compassionate benefactor to the widow. Again, this is a less an account of a healing and more a disclosure of the character of Christ and more a, a study on Jesus' compassion and his mission. And therefore we see the nature of God and his redemptive intervention in the lives of his people. Jesus oftentimes showed compassion. Read the gospels, Matthew chapter nine, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus showed compassion. He showed compassion to the masses. He showed compassion to the unfortunate, Matthew chapter 20. He towards the leper and Mark chapter one. Time and time again, Jesus is one who shows compassion. And when Jesus has compassion, this is where it sticks, he moves to help. That he he sees the need and moves to intervene. He sees someone that needs compassion and then offers them a solution. His compassion, unlike ours, is not far off and disconnected or removed behind a veil of cultural niceties. No, Jesus walks up to her, interrupts her mourning and the funeral procession and commands her to stop crying. His words are not intended to say, now watch what I do. This is gonna be cool. Hold my beer. He doesn't say this and then raise the guy from the dead. Too far? It's okay. Welcome to Renaissance. But he tells her to stop crying because he has compassion. Luke is showing the compassion that Jesus has and the heartfelt hurt that he has for those who are mourning and in pain. Stop. It, it pains him when she cries. Verse 14, then Jesus comes up and he touches the bier and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The bier here is like a wicker basket suspended by poles that they used to carry dead bodies out to the grave. Jesus reached out and touched it. This was so shocking to those around watching this because no one would intentionally touch a dead body, as I mentioned before, because they would become ceremonially unclean. And so the men carrying the body just stopped and gasped when Jesus said, Erp, just a minute, and reaches out and touches the dead man. And he says to the dead man, arise. Verse 15, and the dead man, he sat up and he spoke and, he, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, I, I gotta be honest with you, I have nothing to say here except for this mind-blowing um, thought. 
the man was dead. There was nothing inside of him that could respond to hearing Jesus' voice. I think he just spoke to him for the benefit of everyone else in the room or everyone else there. Because you know dead people don't hear, right? Right? But when Jesus speaks (laughs) to dead things, they somehow hear. They wouldn't, well, anyways, I'm just, that my mind is blown by this, that Jesus speaks to the dead man probably for the benefit of everyone else. He probably just could have thrown a wink that way and the guy would have sat up. And after the dead man is raised, he gives the, the man back to his mother. We see again, the emphasis is on the woman. The miraculous event of the dead man sitting up and speaking is overshadowed by Jesus giving his son back, her son back. Her circumstances have just changed 180 degrees. She was on her way to poverty and destitution with no husband or son to provide for her. But now Jesus has flipped that script and has changed everything. He has turned her mourning into laughing, which is exactly what he said the kingdom of God would look like. Luke is showing us that the whole, showing us what the life looks like, what the kingdom of God rather looks like in real life. Her life has been made whole. Verse 16, it says that the people were filled with fear. I think that's a common thing to happen. If that, I would be filled, filled with fear as well. And after they're filled with fear, they glorify God. They say a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. Verse 17, and the report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Know this, that God and his providence has used the crowds for a purpose. The crowds of the people were there to serve a purpose. They were to be a witness to the events that transpired and to report to everyone what they saw. They were to report the miracle of the restoration and the restoration of the widow. Jesus had done many mighty miracles. And so they went about, and then the, the people would go about after having seen this and they would report all the things that Jesus had done. But hear me, not just what he has done, I mean, because that's the easy, that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the easy stuff. Look, he, he, he healed a blind man. He healed a leper. He, whatever, raised this guy from the dead, this girl from the dead, whatever. But they also began to proclaim who he was, not just what he does. That Jesus Christ is the son of God, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who's coming to usher in the kingdom of God. And everyone who gets in tow with that idea, their lives too can be changed. Their lives too can be transformed. That's what this story is about. Their response of fear is common. It's common in epiphanic scenes where God is revealed. The crowds have witnessed divine activity for sure. In verse 16, they're convinced God has visited his people and Jesus is now called great. What a great prophet, the people say. Oh, how they're close. They've almost got it. He is great for sure, but he is more than a prophet. And this fulfills the, the prophecy that Gabriel said, the angel to, to Mary when he was, uh, um, before he was even born, that, the, that you will have a son. He will be called the son of the most high and the people will call him what? Great. Jesus is great. And it's not just because he can raise dead things back to life, which he can do with no effort of his, of his own. I'm telling you, this is, that's who he is, is what he does. The important thing is, is that he is so moved by compassion and love for us that he's unwilling to leave us in destitute and dark places. This is the point of this story, that the widow has been restored and that you and I, much like the widow, have found ourselves destitute many times before. 
that if someone doesn't come in and change the situation, we are marching out to bury our hopes, our futures, our dreams, our marriage, our business. We're moving out to bury whatever it is that we've hung our hat on. And Jesus intervenes and says, it doesn't have to be this way. Is this the story? Or is it one of three resurrections from the dead that we can write in our little book and say, yeah, Jesus raised three people from the dead. It's more than that. Is this the story? Is this the story for you? The Jesus we laud and we sing about every week that Sam asks to send fire. Go, Sam, go, Sam, go. He cares about us. I was praying this morning that God is love and outside of his love comes judgment. Outside of his love comes compassion. Outside of his love comes mercy. Outside of his love comes grace. He is motivated by nothing but love towards us. And Jesus is the one he's given us so that we can have everything that he wants for us. There is no other way to find the fullness of God in your life outside of his son, Jesus. That's the point of this story. That's the point of scripture. There's nothing else in this world that can satisfy like Jesus. There's nothing else in this world that can change lives like Jesus. There's nothing else, nothing else. It is Jesus always and forever. David Pawson, I'll, I'll close with this. I know we're out of time. David Pawson's a pastor, great preacher, um, and a good exegete of the scripture. He says this, I want you to notice that Jesus' feelings were translated into practical help. That compassion is of no use unless it's turned into action. I suspect in this room, there are one or two people in the room. They're either the dead corpse, <laughs> right? On the bier being carried out to be buried. And if you have not given your life over to Jesus to be born again, you, my friend, are a dead man walking or being carried, whatever you want to look at. You are dead. But Jesus can make you alive again. That you can be born again through the power of God. So you're either the, the corpse or you're the widow who's lost everything and, and you need your life to be restored. And I, I know that Jesus impacted both of them. The dead man sat up and spoke. Woohoo. Wonder what he said. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know? Why doesn't Luke tell us? Because it doesn't matter. It's not the point of the story. If that's, if that's what you want to know, you're missing the point of the story. That God restores things. He finds destitute people and, and exalts them and lifts them. So maybe you're the widow in the room who just needs your circumstance to change. Look to Jesus. Look to him. It's possible you don't need the third job. I mean, some of you are thinking the only answer is for you to just give up everything and get that third job so you can finally make it. I'm just here to tell you, I think this is for somebody in the room, that that's not the answer for you. But the answer is actually lean upon Christ, lean upon God and watch him do something in your life. Miracles happened in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they still happen today, yes? 
maybe the answer is not found in you, but found outside of you in Christ. Oh God, that we would be a people that would lean upon your understanding and not ours of how this thing works. That you are the one who created everything. You know how it's supposed to work. May we be people to see it your way. I want to say this as I just off notes real quick. Um, every Sunday, while we're worshiping here, like singing, there's a prayer room that's right back there that we have prayer hosts that pray for, for real needs in this church. Every week they fill out little prayer cards and, and um, those hosts, they give those cards to me, pastor, and um, some of the other staff. And so we see the needs that are coming through the church if they go through that prayer room. If, if you're a person in this church who needs someone to help you, to, to lift you up in prayer, the way for us to know that is to go into the prayer room to receive prayer. And then we can get the cards and we can follow up with you. We can know how, how are things going? How did the test results come out? Are you, are you tracking with me? But all that to say, most people, and this is on us, don't know that that room exists. But it's like, it's like a, a, a vestige, an extra to the worship experience. And it's not that. It's more than that. And so many of us think that Jesus is just an extra into our life, that we don't need him to be the main thing of our life. Is this tracking? Okay. So all I have to say, um, every week that room is open for prayer. I just encourage you to use it. And in that uh, vein, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us as we close. Let's take a deep breath in. Can we do that? Inhale. Exhale. Heavenly Father, we thank you. As we close this time of reflecting on your word, look at the story of Jesus and the widow, we stand in awe of your compassion and your power displayed. God, we thank you for the reminder that you are a God who sees pain, who understands our grief, and you are a God who reaches out with boundless compassion to lift us from despair. Lord, we acknowledge that just as you had compassion on the widow and her son, you have compassion on each one of us. We know you understand our struggles and our fears and our sorrows. You are the God who walks with us through the darkest valleys. God, you bring us into the light of your love. We praise you. God, we praise you for the unchanging nature of your character. You are faithful and compassionate. You are full of grace. God, we thank you for the hope that we find in Jesus Christ who conquered death and offers us eternal life. Lord, may the lessons from this passage etch deeply into ourselves, into our hearts. Teach us to show compassion to those around us. Use it to motivate us to help others. 
God, right now we lift up all of those who are grieving, those who are facing loss and those in need of your touch in their lives. Father, pour out grace upon them, peace and comfort them. And Lord, as we leave this place, carry us out with an assurance that you are with us, Lord. We know you're with us, God. Help us, God. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to be your hands and feet in a hurting world. Help us to be people who look up with compassion and move to help others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.